and the Academy Award for Best Picture. La La Land. La La Land has 14 Oscar nominations this year and is tied for the most nominated movie in Oscar history, winning seven Oscars. Production design, cinematography, original score, song, directing, actress, and best picture. We lost, by the way, but, you know. You know guys, guys, I'm sorry. No, there's a, this, there's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Moonlight won. Come on, this is not a joke. Come this on. is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Moonlight, Best Picture. Hello there, cinephiles and know-it-alls, and welcome to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, the only podcast that rights the wrongs, celebrates the slighted, and rips Oscars from undeserving hands. Except for today, because today, there will be no ripping. Instead, we offer you an off-brand, on-topic episode, a rumination, and a review, a pause for a patchwork of cinema talk and news from the year of the Dark Lord himself, 2020. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Lee Charles. And I am Spro, and I'm glad we're doing this. If anything, I think our show's main theme is correcting the sins the Academy knew they were committing at the time, or hindsight has just been kinder to us, two mediocre dudes with a podcast who could say, hey now, let's fix this, where the Academy cannot. But the importance of this episode, and I say, you know, you and I, we should make this a tradition at the end of every season, is that we are not hypocrites. The Academy makes mistakes, we make mistakes. But we shall do our best to either explain or correct ours, where the Academy, eh, they don't do it as much. Right you are. And as shocking as I'm sure this revelation will be, we are mere amateurs. For the two of us, talking cinema's a labor of love, it's not a living. And while we do our best to be accurate in our sharing of information, we are, of course, not infallible. No, not at all. And you know what I do appreciate is our listeners are keeping us honest, and they are... I'm getting a lot of feedback and a lot of conversation about this pick and that pick. And what I want to make clear is that in our selection of the awards, it's not necessarily your favorite movie of the year. It's about who you can stomach. Typically, if people complain of our pick to me, I hear people go, well, I would have gone with your second choice. And sure, that's fine. As long as we can agree that the Academy got it wrong the first time. I hope that's fair. We hope that's fair. So in no particular order and in the interests of accuracy, here are a list of our cock-ups from season one. The first one is, so I went through our entire season. I have notes from our listeners. And really, so what we're going to do from this point forward is if you find a correction, you will get a sticker, a Spro and Lee Take on the Academy sticker in the mail for helping us correct our mistakes. So I went through the season over the past weekend and anything that wasn't explained really well or explained wrong or poorly, I made a note of it. So when it came to the King speech, <laughs> we did it. We kind of like fumbled through the explanation. So our first and foremost, I wanted to say 
why don't we read the plot summary of The King's Speech so people know what it's about? That's fair. So The King's Speech is about England's Prince Albert, played by Colin Firth, ascending the throne as King George VI, but he has a speech impediment. Knowing that the country needs her husband to be able to communicate effectively, Elizabeth, Helena Bonham Carter, hires Lionel Logue, Jeffrey Rush, an Australian actor and speech therapist, to help him overcome his stammer. An extraordinary friendship develops between the two men, as Logue uses unconventional means to teach the monarch how to speak with confidence. And his father, King George V, died of a lung disease after being a heavy smoker. I did a little more research on that, and you, you it's, you're right. He was given, it was like a mix of like Demerol and cocaine. Like he was, I don't know how true this is, but <laughs> maybe I shouldn't throw <laughs> somebody, this into our mistake. Somebody might get a sticker. <laughs> well, I, I read somewhere that there was the personal physician to the king in his diary was quoted as saying that he specifically administered this cocktail drugs so that the king would die delirious and quickly so that it, the transition could happen. Yeah, I thought that was kind of kind of creepy, but maybe it's untrue. Sticker time. <laughs> uh, sticker time, I like it. I think, so we picked Social Network over the King's Speech, kind of as like a shoe-in episode. I get more flack about this episode than any other episode that we did. Really? Where people go, well, actually, I was super interested in the King's Speech, and I liked it. So we're not, I will stand by the Social Network till the cows come home, and so will Reddit and a whole lot of people that are under the age of 50 and 40 but i will say so usually we have a top three in every episode we'll elevate king's speech over inception in our official notes i think because we did put inception as third for the year it went yeah, uh, okay. social network black, black swan. swan inception king's speech and really we could put king's speech in the top third because it did resonate with people and now you know like with shows like the crown and whatnot there's a whole lot of fascination with the royals the next one, Jesse Eisenberg was never diagnosed with Asperger's, but he was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, social anxiety, and depression. I said that he lives in Ohio. He does not. He lives in Bloomington, Indiana. I knew it was somewhere in the Midwest, but was off by a state. In that same episode, we discussed Darren Aronofsky and the Japanese piece of animation, the film Perfect Blue. The truth of the matter is that he bought Perfect Blue to redo, supposedly, but instead completely ripped the scene in Requiem for a Dream of Jennifer Connelly screaming naked in the bathtub and then lifted the themes of it for Black Swan. So, I don't know, could be interesting to watch Perfect Blue. Uh, maybe a best animation anime, <laughs> a best foreign animation category, and that would be cool. Yeah. I don't know. Has an anime won best animation? Might be something to look into. Uh, Spirited Away. Miyazaki Spirited Away won. This was, you have a note here of like, what is this correcting? We we said that Joe Wright had no style whatsoever. And I did just watch Anna Karenina. And that is a beautiful piece of filming. It's almost like a Baz Luhrmann film. So if you're looking for a Joe Wright that has style, I would say. Have you checked out Anna Karenina yet? Um, it might be something to approach for. We've been looking to get into I don't want to say the bottom 18 categories, but there's the top six. There's 24 categories overall of the Academy Awards. The top six is best acting, best directing, and best picture. But the bottom 18, best production design or whatnot, Anna Karenina lost out on some of these awards. And this film, I think, deservedly should get some style points. I can live with that. <laughs> I really liked Atonement and I really like Pride and Prejudice. I just Yeah, you do uh, like these those period pieces, don't you? Well, I mean, I, particularly his. I just 
just I couldn't couldn't muster the interest in I think Hannah was his next film after Atonement and I just I couldn't be bothered. Did you ever see that when no. Saoirse Ronan was really young? We locked him into t- with Tom Hooper. <laughs> Right. And I think Joe Wright deserves a little bit more respect, actually. Fair enough. Fair enough. I vacillated on this next one. I think in one episode, I said that Streep had won three Oscars. And then in another episode, I'd said she'd won two. The one that I forgot was The Iron Lady. Um, so she's won Best Supporting Actress once for Kramer versus Kramer and Best Actress twice, once for Sophie's Choice and then for The Iron Lady. So, uh, Not to bring up the Royals again, but I just watched The Crown season four and Gillian Anderson's take on Margaret Thatcher is effing incredible. Yeah? Yeah, I think it's better than Streep. I think it's better than Streep and The Iron Lady. Wow. Best picture went to 10 films, kind of vacillated on what the reason was, and straight from the Academy was having 10 Best Picture nominees is going to allow Academy voters to recognize and include some of the fantastic movies that often show up in the other Oscar categories, but have been squeezed out of the race for the top prize. Yeah, whatever. It was because a bunch of fanboys freaked out over the fact that the Dark Knight wasn't nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. That's all that is. And they want those people that love the Dark Knight to watch the Oscars because there's passion there and money money to be made. The Fighter was based on the life of a boxer named Mickey Ward and his brother Dick Eklund in July uh, 2003. The two were in the audience at the Academy Awards. So I was in one episode, I was like, I think they were there. They were. What I forgot was when Christian Bale won either the uh, Golden Globe or something, he invited Dick up to the stage. And Dick Eglin made a speech, and you could tell Christian Bale did not plan for that. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like the same thing happened when – it was like when Franco won. I think he won a Golden Globe for the disaster artist. And Tommy Wiseau, he invited Tommy Wiseau, the maker of the room, up on the stage. And he tried to do a speech, and Franco was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Akiva Goldsman and not Paul Haggis wrote A Beautiful Mind. But I don't like either of them, so it's, you know. (laughs) Snow White did win an Academy Award, but it was an honorary Academy Award in 1939, recognized as a significant screen innovation, which has charmed millions and pioneered a great new entertainment field. They gave Disney one statuette and then seven miniature statuettes. Isn't that adorable? (laughs) And it was actually also nominated in 1938 for Best Original Score. That's a huge blunder on my part when we were doing the animation episode because I said Disney did not win any Oscars until the best animated one became available. Disney win, did win honorary Oscars and was nominated and won for Short Subjects Cartoon. And then in another episode, we said that... or we You said, ha- you said. <laughs> I said that Catherine Hepburn was the most winningest person in Academy Award history and you corrected me with saying actor and we were about to what we edited out of that episode was we were about to John Williams I think yeah like a composer was the (laughs) most rewarded and so really who it was for our audience I'll give a two second pause and who won the most awards in Oscar history if you guessed Walt Disney you were correct (laughs) Out of all nominees in Academy Awards history, Walt Disney holds the most Oscars. Disney won 26 Oscars over the course of his career and was nominated a grand total of 59 times. Most of his Oscars, won between 1932 and 1969, came in the category of Best Animated Short, including The Three Little Pigs, The Ugly Duckling, and a posthumous win for Winnie the Pooh and The Blustery Day. Which is so solid. Oh, you've seen it? 
Oh, yeah. It was made into, well, it wasn't made into, but you know, the Winnie the Pooh Disney movie it was like the first, the first Winnie the Pooh Disney movie was just a bunch of shorts put together. It started with the honey tree. That's the heffalumps and woozles are very confusals. Uh, yeah, that was great. We could not, for the life of us, figure out where the main character, Carl, lived with his late wife, Ellie, in the f- the, the animated film Up. I think you thought it was San Fran, and I was like, ah, let's just put him in Florida. It was Salt Lake City, Utah. <laughs> 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 like would have been better if it was San Francisco or like Miami. Well, it just makes it so much more ridiculous that Carl takes a nap and the kid gets them to South America. Mm-hmm. Whatever. I'm over it. <laughs> right. I also talked about like how Pixar established these rules prior to producing anything, but they, they set out specifically to be, I guess, contrarians in the field of animation. And there were 22 rules that they established. We're not going to go through it. Maybe second season we'll go through it, especially if uh, if there's another Pixar film that we feel like didn't deserve animated and it might just happen this year. Who knows? Or if there's one that did and they didn't win. Oh. Monsters, Inc. over Shrek, maybe? I don't know. Oh, I would definitely go for that. <laughs> okay. Scorsese, you... I think I said um, something along the lines of, I don't want to tell tales out of school, but... <laughs> Right. And then we theorized that Scorsese got four different divorces because he was a workaholic, which obviously is personal information. We were just kind of guessing, but you actually had done your research. And I just want to put out straight from Marty's mouth that he was married five times and he's still married to his fifth wife. But the reason for why his marital life was chaotic, what he says is, quote, making a film is a dangerous thing because it's to the exclusion of almost anyone else in your life. You have to make this film. You have to feel this strongly, end quote. So what he's saying there is, yeah, he devoted his life to making films and at the expense of people around him. In so many words, that's kind of the same thing that Tarantino has said that like right now the focus is the work. He is just recently in the last like five years gotten married and I think his wife is pregnant or already had their first child. So he's moving into that post director part of his life where he's going to be a dad and a husband and stuff. But yeah, he kind of said the same thing, but he's compartmentalizing it. Whereas Scorsese sounds like tried and tried and tried and tried to do the, these two things simultaneously. We, speaking of Tarantino, the, the story that I retold, I heard from, from an interview with him where he talks about Brian De Palma going and seeing Raging Bull and feeling deflated when the opening sequence Uh, the title sequence came up and I was like, I think he was working on Scarface, which was 83. So it couldn't have been that. I was like, maybe he was working on Carrie, which was in the seventies. It was blowout. So thank you for looking that one up. This one's for you. Is your wife sleeping? She is. All right. So we might not be able to do it, but our last episode, we were talking about Norma Ray and you really liked the sound of the movie where they're in the textile plants and the machines are going and they're shouting over the machines. And I did. I did. Like you then that. reference social network and them being in a club. I was crashing there for a little bit while I'm taking care of some things, but she's done for the summer, so she's back at her parents' place. I recently watched a movie with 
a lady and ruined filmmaking for her because I was just pointing out like, oh yeah, no, that Cheetos is product placement. The the lead star of the movie was Emma Roberts. I was like, she's not going to eat a Cheeto that's just sitting there to for them. And you'll realize that there's no brand on her computer and all these people are dancing, but there's no music playing. And then I re-listened to our episode and you do realize in Social Network, there's no music in that club, right? Mm, no, I didn't. I was going to do it if your wife wasn't sleeping of us shouting to each other and then I was just going to put music over that so yeah anytime there's music in a movie or there's dancing or there's a club or whatnot that's completely silent on set there might be a metronome so people can like hit the same beat but you'll realize that a lot of people aren't dancing to the same song because they don't really know what song is playing they just put that in post so here's a good example of um, me being an amateur you know I don't know what I don't know so um, yeah now I know the fun thing also about and now I just watch extras in the background and everything because all the extras when they look like they're talking they're just mouthing to each other and and the, and carrots. Rhubarb, yeah, rhubarb. not even that like they're I mean because the the assistant director and people on set will go up to them and be like okay you guys you guys are looking for it. so I was on set for a little Disney show called just add magic and it was a festival for a fruit that I don't, it was like two fruits put together, like a plum quat or something <laughs> like that. It was like the plum quat festival of this little town. And I was, I was a background actor at a, a candy stand. And so they're like, so just so you know, you really want to figure out your favorite flavor of candy cane. And this lady here is going to try and help you out. And then you just have to mime all that. So every background actor in every scene has been given like one thing to think about. And so it's always just kind of fun to like look at these people in like a shopping scene or something like that and be like, I wonder what this guy who's making $50 right now. is trying to convey to me without being noticeable in the background. Oh, that's interesting. The final correction was with reference to Joseph Conrad's novella, Heart of Darkness, which I read. It's about a company, not about the military in Africa. It's certainly still no less about colonization, but yes, it's about a company. Kurtz was not a colonel in Conrad's novella. And that's it. That's all the mistakes that we made. Probably. (laughs) I think in one of the earlier shows I mentioned... We don't, we don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. So that kind of brings us to what the hell can we bring to talk about here today? And, oh, God, I, I, it's got to be COVID, right? It's got to be the impact that this pandemic, that the lockdown, that the mass hysteria has had on the world of entertainment. But just, I know that we all have COVID f- fatigue, but just for your own edification, in less than a year, COVID-19 and the response to that virus have managed to decimate the worldwide economy. There's an estimated 44 to 57 million jobs just in America that have been or may be eliminated specifically within the accommodation, food service, and sales industries. They compromise a near majority of those lost jobs. Small business owners and their employees have borne the brunt of these hardships. Layoffs, furloughs, hundreds of millions affected across the globe. And Spro and I are lucky to be considered essential workers, not podcast. <laughs> we have actual jobs, um, <laughs> but we are. We're blessed in that in that sense and have really only been mildly inconvenienced by the virus thus far, Knockwood, and the ensuing recession. You know, there's no question, like I said, we're here to discuss movies, but I, I felt like, or to do so without first acknowledging the damage 
that the virus has done would be uncommonly inhumane. So, And I think just off riff, this podcast was in response to, I think, my own stir craziness of being stuck in a, I bought a house December 19th is when we closed. And that was probably when people started getting sick overseas. And I was stuck in a house with <laughs> nobody to talk to. And I took a walk and I thought about you and I thought about Aww. your love of movies and my love of the Academy Awards. And I texted you and, and said, uh, do you want to do this podcast with me? And I'm, I'm glad you did because it got me away from two months of just kind of loneliness and twiddling my thumbs in a room. So I'm luckier than you in that sense, too, because I, I have somebody here to drive mm-hmm. crazy. <laughs> So, but what does this mean? What does this mean for the entertainment industry? Because, well, this was supposed to be a review of the year episode. We planned out our season to be eight Academy Awards that we ripped away from somebody and gave it to somebody more deserving. And then this last episode at the end of the year was supposed to be kind of our predictions for the nominations of next year's Academy Award show. Everything has been pushed back. We still wanted to do this episode. It became, oh man, we made a lot of mistakes that we should probably air out and correct on the air. And so this became a mistake correction show, but also the Academy Awards have been bumped back two months. What else is going on in the industry is this is a perfect time for writers right now because nothing is being made. There is a backlog of scripts and projects until the pandemic starts easing. More vaccinations are utilized. And then there's going to be filming, filming, filming going on. What we should expect now going into 2021, there's going to be a drought of good material from this. Right now, everything is kind of trickling out. You might get like one to two good movies a month, which they're doing strategically, but there is like the Warner Brothers are about to dump everything just to get back to trying to get some semblance of normalcy. But in 2021, somewhere between probably March and October, there's going to be a drought of good movies coming out because that is when they couldn't film. I was sitting here thinking like, man, you know, now that the vaccinations are coming out, people are going to have things to say based on just the mass hysteria that has ensued from this pandemic. And uh, oh, you're probably right. I do want to point this out because a lot of people like not really in the industry don't really know what's going on. Right now, everybody is looking at the next Mission Impossible movie. I think it's the sixth. I could be wrong. It could be the seventh. Yes, you're right. Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, Fallout was the last one. So this will be the this will be the seventh. So the seventh. So Tom Cruise right now. Say what you will about his belief system or whatnot. He is a leader in this industry, and he was able to get insurance for Mission Impossible in order to film it. And the entire world, the entire entertainment industry is looking at this film because if they can pull off getting everybody jobs and putting everybody to work and getting an action film, which, I mean, this isn't like 12 angry men in one room where everybody can go quarantine for two weeks and then go to work. This is a huge production that everybody is looking at. So Tom Cruise saw two people breaking social distancing rules and went off. You're the gold standard. You're back here in Hollywood making movies right now because of us. Because they believe in us and what we're doing. I'm on the phone with every studio at night. Insurance companies. 
producers. And they're looking at us and using us to make their movies. We are creating thousands of jobs, you I don't ever want to see it again. Ever. And if you don't do it, you're fired. And I see you do it again, you're gone. Because the pressure on him is phenomenal. Did he go off on the right way? No. But anybody that worked in a kitchen has been screamed at by a boss, probably even worse than what Tom Cruise did. The pressure is on him because the number one thing that COVID is killing in the industry is insurance. And a lot of people don't realize, but insurance is one of the first things that you have to get filming anywhere. And it doesn't matter how powerful you are. Disney was going to film their show, the Black Falcon Winter Soldier series in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico a lot of people don't realize is still experiencing probably about 40 earthquakes a day. And Disney could not get their insurance company to approve them filming there. I mean, the earthquakes aren't earth shattering, but they're little rumbles. And the insurance said, no, we're not approving this production. And so Disney had to go elsewhere and take their, their series off of the Puerto Rican islands. So insurance tells you what you can do. Right now, Tom Cruise with Mission Impossible is the only production that has really got insurance approval. And that is why the pressure is so much on Tom Cruise. And the world should be looking at Mission Impossible. If he could pull this off, we could get back into properly filming as long as everybody stays six feet apart on that set. (laughs) Another good example of me not knowing what I don't know. So, and I think I probably, despite my loud mouth, I'm probably like most of the listeners where I don't even consider the fact that productions need to be insured. So that makes a lot of sense though. It's interesting though, if we want to go away from the theatrical and look at what Disney decided to do. If we go back in time, a mere 617 days to April 26th, 2019, this is less than a year before the first string of lockdowns. But more importantly, it's the day that Disney put a period on their golden age of MCU with Avengers Endgame, which broke the box office record for Cameron's Avatar and all told the 23 films beginning with Iron Man and 08 and ending with Endgame generated roughly a billion dollars per film. The number is estimated at 22.5, almost 22.6 billion worldwide. And at that time, there wasn't any reason to believe that theatrical revenue trends pointed any direction but upward. But of course, then came the dreaded virus and the ensuing mass hysteria. And once that lockdown ramifications of COVID were clear, Disney made the decision to consolidate their media interests into one organization and invest in the future of the mostly COVID-proof entertainment streaming. Now, that brings the point that you made regarding insurance still is an issue. Filming is still an issue, but the lack of attendance in theaters, the incredible, like if you look at the number one movie or even just the top five movies over the past 10 months, you're going to be like blown away when compared to where they were a year prior. So in any event, Disney CEO, Bob Chappick tells a little bit of a different narrative when he claims that the choice to do this, to focus on streaming, was not precipitated by COVID, but rather the COVID accelerated the rate at which Disney made this transition. Uh, it was his opinion that, quote, it was going to happen anyway. And if you look at the upcoming Star Wars universe streaming explosion, you see a pretty good indicator, but not all of how Disney intends to spend the next few years. Next year alone, you have the Book of Boba Fett, Star Wars Visions, whatever the hell that is, Star Wars The Bad Batch, again, 
what is that? The Lando Calrissian series, Star Wars The Acolyte, Star Wars Ahsoka, Rangers of the New, of the New Republic, Star Wars Andor. Who gives a shit about Andor? It's just going to be a bunch of, of uh, oh no, that's Endor. What the hell is Andor then? <laughs> I was going to be like, it's just going to be a bunch of Ewoks. I don't know what the fuck Andor is. There's an untitled Star Wars TV series, and then they even are making a movie called A Droid Story. And like I said, I mean, that's just a, the Star Wars is just a piece of the puzzle. They've got Marvel series starting with WandaVision this month, I believe. So they are really investing in people staying at home. Following this decision, perhaps as a reaction to the will of the great and powerful mouse, Warner Brothers announced in the early days of December that they were going to adopt a hybrid release model of their 2021 lineup, which would be simultaneous theatrical and streaming releases where the streaming content would be made available via their affiliate HBO Max. And to the average person, I I mean, you know, again, I'm an amateur. You and Emily have far more knowledge than I do with regards to this. But to me, it's just like... Sounds fine and dandy. But to director Denis Villeneuve, uh, whose epic Dune is not going to be illuminating any darkened theaters until the fourth quarter of 2021, it's a slap in the face. Villeneuve wrote an essay on this matter. He published it on Variety's website, which I urge you to read if this is a topic that interests you at all. But predictably, the director takes the approach that one might expect from a jilted filmmaker. He shames the parent companies for what he sees as a money-driven decision and claims that because of their choice, quote, Dune won't have the chance to perform financially, to be viable, and piracy will ultimately triumph. This was intended to be the first part of a two-part opening film or origin story. There's a bunch of books in the Dune series, and they actually did want to take it into television after the the theatrical release of the the movie. And he, the filmmaker, champions the theatrical experience. Flying in the face of nearly all logic, Villeneuve argues that the future of cinema will be on the big screen, no matter what any Wall Street dilettante says. And he then he goes on to drop some, you know, off-heard persuasive phrases about theater going, communal storytelling experiences, an art form that brings people together, in-person collective experiences we share. One quote of his that needs some discussion is with regards to the streaming versus theatrical experience. And he says, streaming services are a positive and powerful addition to the movie and TV ecosystems. I think we can all agree. But I want the audience to understand that streaming alone can't sustain the film industry as we knew it before COVID. Streaming can produce great content, but not movies of Dune's scope and scale. So Villeneuve makes quite a few claims in here. And I think his first argument about sustaining the film industry as we knew it before COVID, yeah, obviously streaming can't do that on its own. The theater are the source of the majority of a film's income. They employ thousands and thousands of people worldwide. I I don't, I'm not going to argue with him on that. It's pretty clear the viewing habits are going to change as a result of this pandemic. His second argument has left me wondering why can't streaming services produce movies with massive scope and scale? Why not? Because to me, this feels like a very blinkered, old-fashioned, set-in-your-ways kind of way of looking at things. Or maybe, again, is the third or fourth instance of me not knowing what I don't know. Why couldn't Netflix create something like Lord of the Rings 
or like Dune. Why? Perhaps what he's saying is, I mean, they can. They definitely do. The content that I'm seeing from Netflix with their TV shows, if that's what we call them now, <laughs> their budget and their scope and their their production value is remarkable on some of these. But perhaps what Denis is saying is just that if the theater down the street from me said, hey, we are going to show The Fellowship of the Ring, I'm going to go buy a ticket because I cannot get that experience at home. No matter how loud I make my TV, no matter how (laughs) close I sit to it, watching Fellowship of the Ring in my living room is nowhere near the experience I'm going to have watching it in a movie theater. And perhaps that's what he's saying is that he wants you to go and see Dune on the big screen. And so he wants everybody to believe that you cannot get your theatrical experience. You cannot get what people like him, what Ridley Scott does with like Blade Runner. You're not going to be able to experience these. How Ridley Scott, how Denny Villeneuve wants <laughs> uh, you to experience their movies with their art form. They are producing these movies with the idea that when you're watching them, you're in a theater. You're ex- extracting that from what he's saying. but literally- Yeah, no, th- he's not saying this precisely. <laughs> no, no. I mean, he literally precisely is saying st- streaming can produce great content, but not movies of Dune scope and scale. So the only thing that, I, I mean, I was just expecting you to be like, well, think about how much money worldwide one of these Marvel movies makes and it justifies the budget. I, I don't know, man. Like, you know, if Netflix were to make something that was, you know what I think would be a really great epic? I'll go with this since this is my idea. I think you do what South Park did where hell just empties of all the demons and heaven descends and it's just revelations, the fucking battle for the Antichrist. Just, you know, the ultimate... <laughs> the the ultimate Christian apocalypse film. You could make three movies and it would be fucking amazing. So that's what, let's say Netflix commits to that with a, I don't know, $400 million budget for all three films for the trilogy. Mm-hmm. Now, they're a massive company. But if I live in a household of four people, I pay what? Netflix keeps raising. I think they're around $14 right now. So instead of being able to charge the theaters to roll every showtime of that reel or the the thumb drive that the digital fucking <laughs> movie is on these days, they can't get that money. I'm right in saying that they do a really good job of just steamrolling theaters on prices, which is why your popcorn costs more than gold does by the ounce. The theaters don't make any money off of ticket sales. The ticket sales go right back to the studios. The theaters make all their money on concessions. Okay. So take all of that money that the studios would normally get and for every household, you reduce it down to one. What if Netflix said, you want to see this? It's an extra five bucks. Otherwise, there's going to be ads in the middle of the movie. Now, that's a shitty compromise, but there you go. There's a streaming service producing movies with massive scope and scale. I just, I can't stand when somebody says something and it's like, a comment like that to me is just like, no, that's wrong. That's dead. Why couldn't they? Disney, when they released Mulan, wasn't that $30 to see it? Like that first weekend or whatever? Yeah. Well, Disney can go fuck themselves. (laughs) 
So I love the theater. Like I, Me too. And we're, we'll get to that in our listener questions. Don't you think it's going to happen eventually? Don't you think it's eventually? I mean, Netflix keeps adding subscribers. I mean, even Disney, they all keep adding subscribers. They're not losing subscribers. They're growing. And especially at a time when the theaters are dying, they're growing. Isn't right. it just going to happen that eventually Netflix or Hulu or, or Amazon is going to take the helm of these big box office whatever the next genre of the of the year or decade becomes. It is weird. I think where I don't understand, I think my own prediction on how the world was going to go was that when Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and Disney and everybody started coming up with their own streaming services, I was like, it's the end of cable. It's the end of TV, you know, as we know it. Now it's, is this the end of movie theaters? I figured that the movie theaters were going to have the movies and the streaming services were going to come up with their TV shows and everybody was going to want to watch Orange is the New Black and whatever was coming out on Netflix and being like, you don't really need NBC anymore. And then HBO Max came out with their streaming streaming service. And I was like, everybody's just going to watch Game of Thrones now on HBO Max. Like, it seemed like it was the end of TV as we know it. And suddenly now it has changed to, is this the end of movie theaters? And I, maybe as an old curmudgeon, want to be like, no, 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 keep the movie theaters for the movies and then get rid of TV, get rid of cable, and then just go to the streaming services. Well, let's now let's pay for each individual channel that we want instead of paying for cable, which we all complained about in the 90s and aughts of like, I have 200 channels and I only watch five. Well, now just pay for the five. I think that's actually, I'm not going to make, you know what? All these corrections have made me really hesitant to be like, I think. uh." (laughs) Well, you can say, in my opinion. (laughs) Um, To the best of my recollection. I do want to talk about that, the theatrical experience. So, but let's let's save that for the listener questions, which is at the bottom end of the show. So, that brings us to our final point for discussion, which is what is to become of the academy in the future. Spro? Well, there are changes happening. The best foreign language has already become best international film. I would hope that at some point that films would have to bet the farm on whether or not they're going to win one category of the other. And what what that means is I would like it if they had to choose whether or not they were going to go for best animated feature or best picture. And then they couldn't be in the other category. Same thing with like best foreign film because Parasite one for best international film and best picture. And while I applaud the fact that it won for best picture, I feel like somebody else then in best international film didn't get the award that they also deserved. You know, so I don't like the fact that there are films winning for two of essentially what is like the same category, just in their specialty and then overall. Can I interrupt you really quickly? The uh, the movie Minari that's coming out, which takes place in the United States, and it's about a, a Korean family immigrating to the United States and starting a farm, I believe, somewhere in the flyover states, I think Kansas, actually, because it is 50% spoken in Korean or over 50% in Korean, it cannot be considered for best picture at the at the Golden Globes. Hmm. How do you feel about that? Um, I don't know too much about the Golden Globes rules, yeah, but I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> okay. 
what's the category for the Golden Globes? Do they have like a best foreign language, best international? I know it's the foreign press that wins the Golden Globes. So um, you'd think that they would be more inclusive of foreign films. Yeah. I, 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 all I know is that they have the best picture for drama and then they have the best picture for comedy or musical. Mm-hmm. And this film won't be able to go for either because it has over 50% Korean. Since it is not at least 50% in English, it is predominantly in Korean. It is not eligible for best picture at the Golden Globes. It's weird. It is weird since – so in the case of Parasite, if that rule was also a rule that the Academy had, then no foreign movie would ever be able to win Best Picture. Correct. That's pretty stupid. Yeah. This is take on the Academy and not take on the foreign press. So, but – Yeah. Maybe thought, maybe the Golden Globes should be a little bit more inclusive. Yeah. You know, pricks. In 2016, the Oscars made, quote, lifetime voting rights, un- end quote, not a thing anymore, and injected diversity into its voting pool. And I like this. Before this, the average Academy voter was a 65-year-old white male. And like our Congress, who boasts of the highest approval rating at 23%, there's a good chance that demographic is out of touch to the overall scope of audiences. So they have since injected some life into the voting pool. But my major problem will always be laziness with viewing the movies and being movie heads. It might come to surprise to our listeners, but people that work in the industry, these people that are voting on the Academy Awards are not always the ultimate film goers. It's like any industry. You try not to bring your work home. You know, chefs, people that work in kitchens don't necessarily like to cook in their own kitchen. It's just these people that are going and they're working on films when they get home seven times out of 10 and 72% of statistics are made up on the spot. But like seven times out of 10 people, they will go home and instead of watching a fine art film, they're going to watch crap reality television just to kind of shut their brain off and decompress from their work day. So these people that are voting on the Academy Awards, they're not watching, what did we say, 600 films a year to find the top 5%. They are waiting for the screeners to come in. And when the screeners come in, then they're asking other people like, well, what movie did you really like? And that's how like the voting pool gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So I don't care how much inclusivity they have injecting into the Academy Awards. I applaud it. But I want everybody that gets injected and I want everybody there that's now in to watch more films because I wonder how many people in there are going to watch films like The Vast of Night or The Sound of Metal, you know, like, or are these people just going out there to watch Tenant and Ron Howard's Hillbilly Elegy and Spike Lee's Defy Bloods because those are the names. That's kind of what I don't know going forward. And I want that to be solved. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're a member of the Academy, you shouldn't be waiting for everybody else's opinion. You should be out there formulating your own. I don't think anybody's going to disagree with you on that. There's a huge change coming to the Academy Awards. There are a lot of new rules to be put in place for the awards of the year 2024. So there's at least three years now for everybody to kind of get used to these changes. And they focus solely on saying, if you don't have enough diversity in your productions, you cannot win an Academy Award for Best Picture. But it's important to note that this is only for the Best Picture category. So a film could not meet any of these standards and still be eligible for other awards. But the rules are pretty complicated. And perhaps it's just my paranoia, but I always think that the more complicated the rules, the more loopholes people have to get through. We shall see if this really changes things at the top. But really, 
I don't care. <laughs> I, I just feel like every solution this country comes up with is at the top. We're trying to fix inclusion in the film industry by fixing the award ceremony. I, it doesn't make sense to me. Like if it works, it works. And that's great. Like I, I want more inclusion. I want more authentic stories told by the people themselves. But as far as the Academy goes, we know their demographics and we know their diversity. We know the fact that the average Academy voter is a 65 year old white male back in 2014. We know this because they're open about it. Who is not open about it is SAG-AFTRA, the union, which represents some 160,000 professionals, including actors, announcers, broadcast journalists, dancers, DJs, news writers, news editors, program hosts, puppeteers, recording artists, singers, stunt performers, voiceover artists, and other entertainment and media workers. Everybody that's in a union in the entertainment industry that are entertainers are the SAG-AFTRA, and they guard their secret of what its diversity is. If you guard the numbers, I feel like you have something to hide. So how can we figure out how far we need to go if we don't know where the start line is, right? Yeah. (laughs) So is SAG-AFTRA's membership predominantly white is the question. And if it is, how does the Oscars correct their problem if the pool of unionized candidates is whitewashed? It's a cluster cuss, but I think we need to talk more about diversifying union membership at the beginning than we do the Academy Awards at the end. Protesting the Academy Awards is all well and good, and it gets press. It's the brightest lights in Hollywood, but it does very little in getting more children of different races involved in the arts at the ground level. And that is what I think should be mostly encouraged. When art programs are removed because of the funding, this, I think, is what should be protested and corrected at its source. Ooh, I like that. That's, yeah. Yep. Yes. It was very persuasive. I, there's, I have not, I don't have very much more to add to it. But um, I think you that that final point that you made is the the most relevant, and that leads us pretty smoothly into the final section of this egoric podcast that we are <laughs> recording, which is the listener questions. And our first listener question comes from well, they all come from listeners or friends, <laughs> listeners who are friends, um, and we thank them all. Like, thank we, you for yes spending this time with us listening to us, arguing with us through the radio and some of you reaching out. And if you ever have any questions, comments, corrections, or concerns, you can always reach out and and we will be here and maybe you'll make the season two finale. This person asks, uh, a large majority of the Academy judges are Americans involved in the film industry. I'm assuming they're also majority English speakers as well. As you both take on their judgments, what considerations do you take to challenge the extremely Western, heteronormative, and patriarchal gaze, if any? Well, I mean, that's a great question. We should have people put their names on these things. That's a great question. The extremely Western, I think, can be answered with the film industry is extremely Western. America has been leading the way for film since uh, Edison's Kinetoscope in 1894, followed by the first sync sound of the jazz singer in, in 1927. And still, we lead in all the film's behind-the-scenes technological advancements from editing to digital to special effects. Where America goes, so goes the industry. What I like about international films is because we are getting so, as America, as American films, we are getting so fucking lazy with our storytelling. We're getting too structured with our like save the cat 1917 first image is the last image let's remake the popular good films because we don't have any good ideas that might be popular ourselves and give everything sequels horseshit hey can you clarify you've used this term uh save the cat just clarify that for some listeners that probably are like i don't know what that means 
All right. Save the Cat is a book about screenwriting by Blake Snyder. And really, I've helped some friends write their own movies. And I do recommend Save the Cat. And I recommend The Hollywood Standard 2, which will teach you about formatting. Those two books are kind of where you start when you're starting. It's like screenwriting 101. Anybody in the industry, screenwriters and wannabe screenwriters will know about this book. It sells itself as the structure you need to sell a script. So like I said, in Sam Mendes' 1917, when the film opens with a soldier leaning against a tree and ends with a soldier walking into a field, if you know Save the Cat, you know that soldier is going to find a tree to lean on again because Save the Cat says your opening image should reflect your closing image. Hence why when it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, I wanted to tear my hair out because it was such an elementary standard structure. So that's Save the Cat. If you're listening to this because you want to write your own film, I definitely recommend that you pick it up because that's pretty much where you learn the rules, right? That, those are the rules of the Hollywood picture. And really, if you're anybody that's worth your merit in style, like a Tarantino or a Scorsese, they know those rules. They don't necessarily follow those rules because it's so kind of like locked in with its by page five, your inciting incident happens. And then from pages 20 to 40 is everything that you're going to put in the trailer. That's what the fun and games are. You know, like it's so kind of like paint by numbers that we're getting a lot of that in Hollywood, but still the greats like your QT, he's not necessarily paying attention to all that. And that's why I think his his films stand out. But not everybody could be Quentin Tarantino, as we know. Where so like international films, if you could do the subtitles, will give you a theater experience you haven't felt since you were young. I almost promise you that. Like the Save the Cat came out, everybody followed it. But I feel like the golden age of movies is like 70s to mid 90s. And those films are pre-Save the Cat. John Hughes kind of did character development and let everything unfold slowly. It's just, I appreciate those so much more now. As far as like the heteronormative and patriarchal point of the question... Really, I think the the honest truth is that we're two cisgendered, suburban-raised, Caucasian fellas. And if if you need to know that when listening to our opinion, you know, that's that's on you. Like that's just that's that's where these opinions are coming from. I think that we do a good job of trying not to let that persuade our opinions, but I'm not I will be the first to listen to any constructive criticism on how we could get better with that. Yeah, I think that's fair. And look, before I can make any challenges of my own to others, I need to challenge my own views in that sense. For example, why is my interest in international cinema so low? I still haven't even watched Parasite yet, and I am a co-host of a Oscar podcast. You know, to be fair, I did say fuck the Oscars from the word go, but um, <laughs> Parasite has a completely unblemished reputation, and I, I still haven't watched it. Watching a foreign film sometimes requires a level of context to fully appreciate, and that feels like scary work and certainly more taxing than watching a film derived from a world I already feel I sort of understand, my world. And for somebody who claims to love cinema as much as I do, it's uh, rather limited and diminishes my scope of expertise. So in 2021, I should probably look at my own viewing habits and seek to expand them and be more inclusive with my own viewing habits. On the other hand, I've also been considering what happens as a result of the Academy's newly instated gender, ethnic, and identity quota. 
service. And I know that they only apply, are only applying to the best picture Oscar, but I think what what happens could be multifaceted. Maybe these quotas are going to in- increase viewership to underappreciated artists and films whose messages are lost among an ideological sea of white male writers, directors, and producers. Perhaps it will embolden younger generations of kids from previously underrepresented groups and inspire the creation of more cinematic works of inclusive storytelling. Maybe it will contribute to the slowly shifting ways of thinking by deothering minority groups. Obviously, that is the idealistic hope of those who support the Academy's decisions. But I wonder if if it'll become a reason for some to invalidate the Oscars and or the films and arts that benefit from these new rules. Now, don't get me wrong, I give a fuck if somebody wants to invalidate the Oscars, I'll stand next to them while they do so. But when a movie like Parasite wins, which kind of came out of nowhere, we have a president in the United States, I don't want to get political here, he's sort of a singular president and then he's got an opinion on everything, but I can't remember any other president ever coming out and being like, here's my opinion on the winner of the best picture. And because it was a non-American film that won best picture, he did that kind of like, what's going on here? Bullshit. It's like, stay in your lane, fuckface. But I mean, I think there's probably more people out there that felt that way. And if the invalidating of these awards comes at the cost or at the expense of these films that might benefit from these new rules and deserve it, that's a problem. These rules are being looked at already as an imposition, despite the good intentions behind them. There's always a cost when inclusion is forced. So if the reductive gatekeepers of Hollywood media are to have their ideologies, messages, and subtexts challenged and destabilized, it's got to start with me. And I like your notion that it could start and should start at the lowest level possible, which is encouraging as many different types of young people as possible to get into performing arts. So anyway, I think it's incumbent upon me first to expand my own viewing habits because I am not <laughs> I am not as worldly as I'd like to think I am when it comes to cinema. So I need to embrace and champion pluralism in cinema while interrogating my own viewing habits, preferences, and opinions. It comes down to being a metacognitive viewer, and I don't think I do that enough. The other interesting thing that is coming out is that there's a lot more people, I think, that put on subtitles to their TV shows or their films that they're watching now. Yeah, I hear a lot of young people doing that. So I wonder if we're going to get a little bit number to reading subtitles as we watch films, and then therefore we can open up our scope of films that much more. Do you have any idea how you're going to to start your international film journey in 2021? Do you have any ideas? Like, Well, the person that wrote that question, she and I have ongoing dialogue. She hates Tarantino and I've tried to argue on his behalf for her. And she's like, nope, she's a cool person. She said, you have to promise to watch Princess Mononoke. So the first two international films I'm going to watch are Parasite and Princess Mononoke. This question comes from an artist and it is the following. It says, my number one question is, what is the criteria for a best picture, best whatever nominee, etc.? Is this completely subjective or is there some sort of objective criteria people look at when sending in their nomination? I feel it is mainly subjective as in most art, but there has to be some quantitative, I think I used that correctly, information. Um, I think it's qualitative in this sense, um, not to be a prick. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> there has to be some quantitative or qualitative information that the Academy uses. I think if listeners knew what makes a best picture or best whatever, they could follow and relate more e easily. Uh, in my industry, we are measured by what we call the 12 elements, uh, impact, creativity, lighting, storytelling, color balance, technical, presentation, composition, style, center of interest, subject matter, and technique. And that industry, I don't know why this person is being coy. That industry is photography. I think it's a fair question. So before you get in, because I didn't do any actual research, before you get into that, I'll just say we are a bit nebulous when we discuss how we arrive at the choices we make and how the Academy arrives at theirs. We have literally taken everything subjectively. I mean, that doesn't mean that we haven't been guided in our choices, but if I'm earmarking the best films of the year, I know that I start by singling out technical acumen and originality. You know, I look at cinematography, editing, sound design, the stuff that I feel really visually separates one movie from another. You know, we find that there's really nothing new under the sun, right? But sometimes a film does show up, which has been lit or shot or edited or mixed or all of those and presented to us in such a way that it feels new and visually remarkable. And these are the ones that are usually the hardest to forget. And that's why they are far more buoyant when I look back on the year of movies, even if I crammed that year into like three weeks. I would also have to say that I need to feel that there's a unif unifying vision or a unified vision within the film. Look, it's obvious when a filmmaker truly has something to say and when they don't. And a well-honed vision shines through every aspect of the film. Uh, the mise-en-scene, as the French say. And, you know, if I don't feel like there's somebody competent at the helm, somebody who really truly has something to say and knows what they want, it's not going to add anything. The film won't add anything to the, the human dialogue. I might still be able to enjoy it, but it's not going to be one that I would bring to the table for a best picture discussion. And then, uh, you know, the more obvious criteria would be the casting, the acting choices, script, and then the tonal influences like the art direction or the musical score. So I guess I, I just always thought of I always thought of like Best Picture, for example, as which movie could have won the most awards. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So if this movie was best, you know, if it scooped up every single technical award, then that's something that you really should be looking at as a possible Best Picture. So to answer this guy's question, his industry, obviously, with the impact, creative, creativity, lighting, stories, nothing, nothing of that is in effect when it comes to who we award Best Picture, Best Act, none of the Best Director. It is totally subjective when it comes to the Academy Awards. To be nominated has parameters, but none of the parameters have anything to do with art. Like to be nominated for an Academy Award, you need to have your film be shown in LA for seven days at a theater. It needs to be submitted by this time. It's it's all very kind of paperwork. So no answer for this question for somebody that's looking for a spectrum of creativity. Nothing is going to... Yeah, that makes it seem it, very bureaucratic and um, sort of cold. But this could be all inclusive. So anybody that goes to see a film, you yourself could be like, I think that's the best picture. And so it's all about like what you bring to the table, what you would think a best picture would be. For me, a best picture is not necessarily necessarily a perfect film, but it's nothing that you could find fault with. Like where, where we're talking about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, I find fault in Chadwick Boseman's performance. So I would not consider that something that should win Best Picture. In the same instance, when we're talking about a Best Performance,
performance like Viola Davis. I watched Viola Davis in that movie. I could not find Viola Davis in that movie. She was such her part that that I would give her best actor best supporting actress hands down. And so that's kind of what I what I angle with. With when it comes to best director, I look at best director now really since we started dissecting this at the beginning of the year, the best style, the best style points, you know, like if they wanted to throw and be like, hey, Vast of Night guy, and I don't even know his name and I feel bad about that, but you did this really stylistic movie for $700,000 and you got these no-name actors to put on performances of their lifetime, like that is who we should be rewarding. You know, it's like, it's kind of like the same thing with when we were talking about... Francis Ford Coppola and Apocalypse Now versus Kramer versus Kramer, he should have won Best Director. Even if Kramer versus Kramer won Best Picture because nobody could find fault with it, the style points of Apocalypse Now are so much more than Kramer versus Kramer that they should have handed it for, to Francis Ford Coppola. But at that time, it, like Best Picture and Best Director went hand in hand. So if we're talking about Best Director, I think it's got to be somebody that has brought such style to the picture that it's undeniable. Like you could even say Nolan with Tenant, even though I didn't like Tenant as a film, the style, like what he put on the screen is definitely a vision. So I would, I would be like, yeah, no, totally. He should be nominated. He should have been nominated for uh, Inception and he wasn't. So our photography friend who asked that question, man, like I would be so curious and so interested from a photographer's point of view, what he thinks the best cinematography of the year is, you know, like going into it, like if we go, hey, check out Kramer versus Kramer and Apocalypse Now, I'm sure you'd be like, well, I, I really like the lighting and this scene of Kramer. Like they're going to see something that I would not see whatsoever as a yeah. casual film goer. So. And that's, I've actually been asking this person to to pick a best cinematography Oscar that they would re-award and uh, they are reluctant to come on the show. <laughs> they don't believe they could really add to it. Right. This is us call, I mean, calling you out. To win an award, it's, you have to sign on the dotted line and make sure you hit your deadlines. It has nothing to do with... Yeah, which makes our awarding process a little bit more genuine, I would say, than the Academy mm-hmm. than the Academy themselves. Not to say that each Academy member isn't taking at least some fraction of, of the same sorts of criteria that we're taking into account, but whatever. But there's politics. There's politics when it comes yeah. to the Academy Awards, and well, I, I look forward to the second my, season because we're going to take those on. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was never mad about Emma Stone until we did that episode. <laughs> <laughs> Never, I was never, I mean, I was like, okay, but anyway. um, (laughs) I'm glad, I'm happy. (laughs) Good good question. Uh, Who is your audience? Is it the average movie enthusiast or the Lee Charles know-it-alls who watch all the behind the scenes on the DVDs and research the stories behind the scenes? I think it's both. I think it's both. And I think we mapped it out in the first episode. Lee Charles is more academic in his approach. And while I'm a student of film, I'm like a scripted reader with it. I ingest a lot, digest little. I watch good films. I put bad films on in the background. And I think we both kind of approach it. I know a little bit more behind the scenes, but you know a lot more on the screen. And so... I think it's a good dichotomy. And then we bring on the third person guest who is either a professional like Emily is in the industry or a casual watcher like Lawrence was. Yeah. We try to hit them all. Um, And then follow up to that one is what is our goal for our listeners? Is it for just to enjoy, uh, to try to shape cinema knowledge and inspire them to watch new awarded movies? 
obviously we want people to listen and we want, we want people to listen. And obviously we're, you know, we're grateful as fuck to those who do. But in the end, I just like talking about movies with you. And in the process of doing this podcast, I've found that from start to finish is such a rewarding experience viewing movies that I've never seen or returning to films that I have seen, researching more and more about the films and the making of the films and the cultural landscapes at the time, and then writing these documents together and recording together. The only part of the process that I'm not in on is the editing. But for me, all of that stuff is reward enough. I would prefer to keep going and evolving in our own way. And if through the course of our own enjoyment, we tap into a marketing mix or target a demo, that would be just ducky. And if through the course of listening, these people find themselves curious enough to watch a movie that they've never seen because of our recommendations, that would be really fulfilling. The the reward has been in the doing for me. I remember texting you and being like, in the end, it's just fun. We're putting this out there. I think what has been the most rewarding point for me is in episode eight, when Lawrence was like, if it wasn't for this show, I would never have seen all that jazz. And I am so psyched and thankful that I have. And if any audience member out there has seen a movie because of our show, because we talked about it, they have looked at it and they have enjoyed a movie that they have never heard of before, before listening to Spro and Lee take on the Academy, that is the purpose of the show. And if you're like so much more intrigued because I am the Academy Awards lover, I like, it's my Christmas, like I said, I watch it every year. If you are more intrigued to sit down to watch next year's show, then that's that's my ultimate, that's my pinnacle. That's my, if you told me that, you would be gifting me a compliment that I would just, I would save the box for. So I have to go back to watching the Oscars now because of this podcast. All right, <laughs> next question. How can you get that movie theater experience in your home? I like the way this person spelled theater too. It's very proper. Is the experience more important, less important, or less important than the art itself? The experience sets the stage. It puts you in a mindset. You're invested. No phones, no distractions, etc. It is an experience, right? The pandemic aside and everything, when they closed down the theaters, the movie theater to me was my runaway. It was my treehouse in the backyard. And no, I cannot figure out a way to get that experience at home. You're always going to be distracted at home. You're always going to be able to get up and go to the fridge and turn on the volume a little bit louder so you can hear it on your way. But you're never as engrossed as you are sitting in a theater seat with your popcorn in your lap, darkness surrounding you, and the inability to just get up and, I don't know, like take off your pants to get more comfortable because there's strangers around you and there are laws. You know, like it's, it is part of the experience and I would, I don't want to be pessimistic about it or anything like that, but I would say, no, you can't emulate the theater experience and I hope the movie theaters upon safety precautions being realized and everything that they're able to open back up because I would like to be in it. But what we have to understand is that it's all evolving. Cinema is evolving and we're getting into streaming services. And ADD is almost kind of the wave of the future. Kids today, they don't really have, I mean, I I don't want to broad brush it. So on the whole, I see a lot more of my students having attention issues when it comes to movies. They like to see things on a whole lot more shorter scale. They'll watch YouTube videos, 60 second TikToks. They're always browsing and running through things and movies are 
lifts are kind of longer. So I wonder now, the possibility is there where shorts would get more popular for the future. Will people be looking at animated shorts? There's one called If Anything Happens, I Love You. It became a TikTok craze. It's a 20-minute short on Netflix that everybody was crying to. If anybody's looking for another short, there's one that's called Meet Zach Sobieski. Shorts may become, they might get more popular as cinema evolves. Well, you kind of said a lot of my points. I mean, we were both conceding that it's an experience. And I think it all comes down to Tyler Durden's declaration. You decide your own level of involvement. Get a lockbox or better yet, get a timed lockbox. I have one of these. Throw your phone in there if you don't have any self-control like me, and it's inhibiting your engagement and then dive into the movie. But as you said, you know, take away all our web-ready devices and we're going to still find ways to distract ourselves within the confines of our own living room. It's the theaters keep people docile, or at least they should. They're unfamiliar territories. They're dark. uh, They're increasingly more comfortable enveloping ethereal images and sounds. You could try recreating that environment in your own home with blackout curtains and leather recliners and a giant screen or projector, um, a super sound system and rules about talking for guests. But I don't think it's ever, it's never going to be the same. We'll always be a familiar private residence where social contracts don't exist, where there are only friends in the seats around you and your guard is down and you're not only physically relaxed, but mentally as well. I'm not sure why sharing this communal space matters, but it does. It's not as though following a theatrical screening of a movie that I've gone up to strangers to strike up conversations about what we just watched. Um, In fact, it's quite opposite. The majority of interactions that I have with other cinema goers are negative because I'm like, I do the, hey, could you stop talking? (laughs) (laughs) So that then everybody looks at me and then looks at them. I guess it comes down to the reason that I wish that I'd seen Tenet in the theater. I missed out on that choral element that an audience brings to the experience. Tarantino discusses this. I'm sure people are tired of me bringing up Tarantino. <laughs> I mean, the man really the man really knows what the fuck he's talking about. And he says that as a director, from a director's point of view, that's he's playing us, his audience, like an orchestra. And our reactions when we react to the movie that he has made is him conducting us. So I missed out on that when I saw Tenet at my house. It's the jubilant eruption when Captain America summons Mjolnir and orders the Avengers to assemble. Or it's the girl sitting next to me who politely excused herself after peeing when Raymond K. Hessel sputters back to life in Seven. It's the muffled sobs of an entire audience as we watched an innocent woman be murdered in the stoning of Soraya M. Listen, I love staying home. (laughs) The older I get, it's my favorite night out is a night in. And my wife, God bless her. But you know what, man? If I'm going anywhere, I'm with you. I want to go to the movies and then I want to get a coffee and a quick bite at the Cracker Barrel afterwards to discuss what I saw with friends. Can you truly get that same experience at, at home? I can't. If you can, good for you, but I can't. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's a community feel to it. There's like you said about Captain America and Marvel and Endgame. The Marvel movies, the one thing I liked about them, because I would be like, I'm going opening night. And people are like, are you that excited about Marvel? And I went, no, I'm excited because Marvel brought back the feeling that you had to see the movie opening night and that you were with a crowd of people and everybody was enjoying it together. Experiencing it at the same time. And reacting to it and gasping and everybody, it was kind of like, it was like a new version of church where like the community was coming together and you were all receiving the message at the same time and doing it as a group. And I just, that was one thing that I'll, I will always give Marvel. I was I was on Martin Scorsese's side when he was like, but it's not true cinema. And people were like, oh, fuck that guy. He's a fuck boomer. Yeah, and, and, that was, like, and that was when everyone was like, the Irishman was a piece of shit. <laughs> so it's like, I was on his, like, no, it's not, it's not the greatest thematic you know will it stand the test of time everybody's kind of looking for the next marvel movie but it was just it was like the buddhist experience of like experience the moment within the moment and i will always value marvel for giving me those experiences that i only remember growing up in the 90s i'm sure anybody who has grown up and lived in the movie theater has more than a handful of experiences where they remember everybody laughing or everybody crying or everybody cheering. And they remember the jolt that that gave you. Just sharing an emotion, an emotional outburst um, is enough, I think. So that brings us to our sign-off and the retirement of our sign-off phrase. Not mine. Uh, okay. Which for most of the episodes has been stream on, starting with the trailer, and then I deviated for episode one and said good night and good luck because I had been re-watching Scrubs at that point. And the janitor has the one episode where he gets to do the announcements. <laughs> he like blackmails Kelso, and then at the end of the day, he's like good night and good luck. <laughs> Early on in season one, a good friend, in fact, one of the people who uh, wrote in a question, told me in no uncertain terms that this was awful. A lazy, shitty, and annoying phrase which was beneath my capacity for cleverness. Although I haven't concocted anything to replace it, the reviled phrase is gone. In its place, for season two, I have no idea what we're going to put. At least for a placeholder, for now, I'll adapt some words from Joel and Ethan Cohen. If you disagreed with anything that we said here today, just remember, that's just like our opinion, man. That concludes our first part in our season one review. Join us again in February where we will review all the movies that came out that we think will probably be looked at by the Academy. And in the meantime, as always, you can check us out on Instagram at Take on the Academy. Or if you're a Facebooker, we have a group on Facebook curated by our webmaster, The Voice. Please jump on there and drop us a line. Say something, say anything. Do you agree with us? Do you disagree with us? Add to the conversation. We'd love to hear other opinions. Throw your hat over the wall, as they say. And our next episode is going to offer a lot Lots of suggestions and some to avoid. <laughs> I'm glad that you said that. I was going to throw that. <laughs> Mostly from the big three Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Prime, but then also a few off Redbox. The shit show of 2020 has leaked <laughs> into 2021 a little bit with the entertainment selection that we got. And if you're like us and you're like, 
<laughs> I didn't watch one good movie this year. Totally understandable. Realize that the Academy Awards have been bumped back two months to allow for the pandemic and the shutdown and the theater shutting down. So, the usual splurge of award-worthy films that come out in November and December have been bumped back to January and February. Now is the time. There are some gems. And Lee Charles has found some diamonds in the rough. And of course, you know, if you don't agree with us, just remember, it's just like our opinion, man. <laughs>